Today on Jam Session, it's something of a show and tell, right, Amanda? Yes, but for grownups, mostly. And pop culture edition, mostly. Let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Today, we will get to the obligatory... Dominic West, Lily James update, and some some notes of the crown, but that will be at the end of this podcast. First, we are going to share with each other and with you one thing we've been enjoying or consuming from the following categories, a book, a pop doc, a TV show, and an other. And I'm excited. Amanda, would you like to go first? I'd love to. Which category do you want to start with? Let's start with books, obviously our passion. Okay, that's great. So in books, I'm sharing a reread because you know what? We talk a lot about books on this podcast and I think that's great. And you and I are both really enthusiastic readers. And I think we have an enthusiastic reader community. And a lot of times we're challenging ourselves. And even in our leisure reading, we're challenging ourselves to do new things. But it's been a weird year. And I got to be honest, I'm not always challenging myself. So I reread a classic, The Secret History by Donna Tartt. A book I've probably read five times now, but that also lives in my imagination as if I'd read it more. Great book. Really, really excellent stuff. Holds up. Pretty weird. Entirely captivating. It feels like escapist for sure. And not unrealistic, but just like another world you can't really go to, but that you're kind of ensorcelled by. Um, So I remain a fan of that novel and would really like someone to make the movie or the miniseries version of it. Okay. Thanks for bringing that up. Why has this never been adapted? This is a famous in development, but like never happened. Uh, 
project. At one point there was, it was in development, like in the nineties, I believe. And, uh, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn were attached to write oh, the wow. script. Amazing. At another point, I believe Gwyneth Paltrow and her brother either owned the rights or were trying to buy the rights, which Gwyneth Paltrow, it's Camilla, if you uh, please sign me up, especially I think it was like early 2000s, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. It was, bu- it was before. So like Margot Ten- was- Margo Tenenbaum style. Yes, exactly. And for whatever reason, it never got off the got off the ground. And I, like, I don't really know why. I mean, you know, there are a lot, there's a history of a lot of novel adaptations, not quite making it into movies. I'm thinking about, or, or TV shows, for example, I'm thinking about like the lost corrections pilot by Noah Baumbach. Mm. Um, and it, it, it can be hard to condense like a sprawling novel into two hours, which is, and so sometimes people give up or sometimes they make things like the goldfinch, also a Donna Tartt adaptation. <laughs> That's an adaptation of an almost thousand page novel. Believe the movie clocks in under two hours. Maybe it's slightly above. Um, and you mentioned before we started recording that it's available on streaming now. Yes, I saw it on the homepage of Amazon Prime. I've really okay. like, reached the depths of, of um, COVID where I'm just sort of like every day I just scroll through the streaming apps and I'm just like, what should I watch today? And Um, I I will say like most of my life right now is oriented around either going to the grocery store or consuming Netflix content and also reading. Mm -hmm. Like those are the three pillars of activity outside of my job. Um, but sometimes I try to diversify. And so I was going through Amazon last night, just for the record, I I settled on the right stuff on Disney plus starring three of my favorite, um, white guys from television, James Lafferty of One Tree Hill, Patrick J. Adams of Suits and Jake McDormand of Greek. Anyway. Wait, so The Right Stuff is a TV remake of the classic film, which is the adaptation of the classic Tom Wolfe book. Is that correct? About space? Yeah. Yeah. Patrick Adams is playing John Glenn. Major downgrade. Major downgrade from Glenn Powell in, uh, what was the name of that movie? Um, I'm thinking it's like uh, Simple Things, but it's not. It was really good with Janelle Monae, Octavia Spencer. And oh, hidden figures. It's, yes, that was it. Anyway, that's where I landed I last night. Say, it's a major downgrade from the movie version where I believe John Glenn is played by Ed Harris and <laughs> uh, Scott Glenn is um, is Alan Shepard. Oh, and it's Sam Shepard who's Chuck Yeager. Anyway, you don't really care about that, but I assume those are the major <laughs> characters in the TV show. And like young Ed Harris and young Sam Shepard, um, really important to me. Also, by the way, rewatched Baby Boom recently. Sam Shepard and Baby Boom, extraordinary stuff. Okay, back to you watching the right stuff. <laughs> yes, just that's sort of besides the point. But I will say, very easy quarantine viewing. But yeah, I saw the Goldfinch on Amazon Prime last night, and I was like, should I do it? And I was just like, no, I love I love the book too much to subject myself to the movie. But the, the thing that's so weird is what you were saying is like the secret history is eminently adaptable. The Goldfinch is definitely more difficult because I think of the casting just from the beginning was hard and they, they made some good choices, but so sprawling secret history is long, but way tighter. It's like largely set in one location for the most part. And it has like a lot of, one of the reasons it's so good is it has a lot of really common tropes. Like it's at a boarding school. It's a group of friends. There's a secret. There's some violence. There's like kind of, um, 
It's very, I know what you did last summer, except like extremely highbrow instead of extremely middlebrow. Yeah, or at least extremely literary. Yeah. yeah. It's also contained. There is an inciting event and a climactic event as opposed to the goldfinch, which has like eight different phases, um, which, which is exciting. And it's part of what makes the goldfinch uh, so enjoyable is that you like travel through life and, and meet all of these different characters. But the goldfinch to me is classic miniseries territory and the secret history. If you had the right person, Killer two-hour movie. No pun intended. <laughs> um, it's funny you say that because the book that I always really wanted to have be adapted, and similarly to what you're saying before, what is um, Michael Shabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And I now think that that movie should be done by the team that did Into the Spider-Verse because that's like best case scenario of a really um, sprawling, like superhero-driven story. And that's my ideal version of Cavalier and Clay is now an animated joint, which I never thought I would say. However, it was optioned by the Coen brothers and then they never did anything with it. Uh, I believe they also optioned the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Um, didn't do anything with that either. But now uh, Michael Shabon and his wife, Ayala Waldman, wife and, and co-writer, they worked on Unbelievable Together, for which they were nominated for many awards, um, got the rights back and they're doing it as a, as a miniseries of Showtime. And I cannot wait. So hopefully there'll be production one day. And the other's hope for the secret history. That's all I'm saying. So in conclusion, I recommend rereading the secret history. And I personally do not recommend watching the goldfinch, the film, but I do recommend the goldfinch, the book noted. I I will say it was obvious. It was going to be a bad movie when they cast Ansel Elgort in in the lead. There was no way it was going to succeed from that point. Yeah, though I, he's not the worst part of the movie. I'm not going to name names, but there's just abs- one absolutely inexplicable performance. Um, anyway, good book. We love to read here on Jam Session. <laughs> my book is also related to my Netflix addiction, uh, addiction, and it is the first Bridgerton book. I read The Duke and I, which is the first in Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series. I think I mentioned this previously. So the Bridgerton books are set in Regency London, and there are about eight siblings, the Bridgertons. Each book is about a different sibling, and they're like, quest for for love. Um, Having now read Bridgerton book one, The Duke and I, I realized that I've never read a true romance novel before, and this was my first one. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this because you had mentioned Bridgerton and it's kind of like the Bridgerton promo machine is like slowly starting because I believe the series is coming out like on Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. And you'd mentioned it to me before and I was doing like a, a book order the other day. And so I was like Googling Bridgerton and it was unclear to me how much of it is a romance novel versus like a period you know, historical fiction drama. What's the breakdown yes. in your opinion? So the reason I, I felt I needed to read this book was because the show is the first project from Shonda Land on Netflix. Shonda Rhimes didn't write it, but she's the executive producer. It was um, The showrunner is named Chris Van Dusen. He's worked on some of her other shows. Um, also, the show itself is, unlike the book, one thing I'm just really excited about is... Um, completely uh, like interracial for lack of a better term. I think one of the terms people use, this is true of Hollywood, the um, Ryan Murphy show is race blind. So characters who might've been played by white people, because that was true to like the class system of Regency London are played um, by black people. And that's like a really cool part of the show. 
So that's that's sort of like a side note. Bridgerton itself is almost completely romance novel. And (laughs) it was quite an experience. I was like, oh, I've never read a book like this before. And it's an incredibly popular genre, like insanely popular. Um, There's like several sex scenes in it, like pretty, I wouldn't say like graphic, but sort of like detailed. Uh, I will say like they're much, uh, they they made me think of um, George R.R. Martin's sex scenes because they're sort of both like fairly clinical and sort of like descriptive (laughs) but these are a lot better i think those are the worst parts of george rr martin's books i've only read one um but yeah it's a straight up romance novel i read it like in about three sittings and i had a good time however i do not plan to read any more of the books okay so i want to keep talking about this because (laughs) i have never really read certainly a historical romance novel. I think the Jasmine Guillory books are classified as romance novels, but to me, there is a real line blurring between romance and romantic comedy. And, and those to me are a little bit more romantic comedy, but like with actual sex scenes, which is great because we're all adults and we deserve it. Um, But what about it? What's going on besides the sex scenes in this book? Okay. I'll answer that. Just, just reminded me of one thing, which is like a plot point in the book. And this is like a mild spoiler is that because it's set in Regency London, like the emphasis on the, the debutantes and the bride's virginity is like a pretty big plot point. So part of the story is that the woman at the center of the book doesn't, has never even like talked about sex. She doesn't know what sex is. So she doesn't, she's like, curious to find out to find out what happens on the first night of marriage and like what it means to consummate your marriage okay Okay. but just to be fair like that is also in a lot of ways the plot point of every Jane Austen novel and every Victorian novel and pretty much every novel about women like before the the pill but it's it like it's implied and it's about propriety as opposed to yeah as well and it's also written from a social perspective as opposed to like a personal perspective and it sounds like these are written from the perspective of someone who would just like has some questions which don't we all the light touch of edith wharton this does not have um (laughs) so uh what was your question again oh the what is this book about well, what happens? Bes- I'd like just oh. what makes a romance novel in your mind? Um, I think the fact that the historical setting is like window dressing to ultimately just like relationship drama, which I love on television. Love, capital L, all caps, love. That's why I'm excited about the Spurgeon <laughs> TV show. But I think in the book, there's no nuance. It's all like ver- driven by like, how is this relationship going to work out? And the characters don't have a lot of depth outside of like the two people in the relationship and the marriage. Right. I was going to ask, is there like a difference in the, the type of the relationship or the way the relationship is presented in the book? Well, um, marriage is, is, is not um, like sort of like the couple gets married like a hundred or 150 pages into like the 450 page book. So, okay. So it's sort of, maybe it's like, and then it's Are about, they just like, going to love each other or is she going to love the other person? Because there's, there's like fighting, is... a question of children. There's a question okay. of like defending one's honor and like, are you a disgraced woman? The other aspect of Bridgerton that got me excited is that there's like a gossip girl character in it. There's, her name is Lady Whistledown on the show. She is 
played or voiced by Julie Andrews. Um, I, all of my interest in this is, is motivated by like having context for the television show, which we will be discussing in January of 2021. See you then. Um, but <laughs> the there's, so there's like, each chapter begins with like a quote from Lady Whistledown's like broadsheet or whatever. I, I just, it's, it's amazing. I can't wait for the show, but <laughs> Lady Whistledown is tremendous. And she Continue. somehow like has all this info on people going to different balls and, and whatnot. I get the impression the show is more nuanced and, and I think choosing to make it race blind is an indication of that from the beginning, but I get the impression that it is more expansive and more nuanced than the books. Okay. I mean, I will definitely watch this show. Yeah. I just, I, I did make the decision that this was a type of content that I w- was just going to consume in TV form. So that'll be nice, right? You'll be able to speak sure. to the book and I'll be able to speak to, you know, just watching it for the first time. I, I will say, I think romance novels are probably ideal plain reads, not beach reads to me. Cause a beach read, I think you can really like lose yourself in like a great long book, regardless of intellectual rigor but this just seemed like a great like six hour flight book where you could you could read most of it in that sitting i think i've read plenty of novels that would be classified as romance novels you know i think technically the um the royal we the the Mm. novel by the fug girls is classified as a romance novel and like the filippo or philippa sorry, British people, Gregory novels, which are like historical romance novels about all the other things going on in Henry VIII's court, you know, besides like the, the power struggles. Um, I, so I don't know why, I, I guess people just have different tastes. All of the romance novels that I tend to be drawn to either have some sort of historical or like pop cultural element to them as well, which is like probably true for most of my reading, but you know, I'm, I, I trust Shonda on this Me stuff too. deeply. So I'm excited. I also just want to say that the man who plays the lead in the TV version of Bridgerton, just follow him now on Instagram. Watch his, his following rise. His name is Roger Jean Page. He's British. Okay. He's great. so, so handsome. It's just like great stuff. All right. Let's Merry move Christmas on. Merry Christmas to everyone. <laughs> Merry Christmas to everyone. Amanda, we both watched some pop docs kind of, please tell me about yours. My pick is David Byrne's American Utopia, which is a filmed, you could call it a concert film. You could call it a documentary. It was directed by Spike Lee. Perhaps you've heard of him, Um, but it is a a beautifully filmed version of the play, the David Byrne's American Utopia that um, was running on Broadway really until the pandemic shut Broadway down, as I understand it. And I was not lucky enough, well, I don't live in New York. Um, so I was not lucky enough to see this show in person and thus got to experience it in my home. And I think it's probably like the most moved I've been by a piece of art wow. in 2020. I had like, I, I watched this as a part of the Toronto Film Festival, which was online. So, you know, it, it was just like you had an, another streaming service besides Netflix and all the others. And it was like Toronto Film Festival. But I watched it like, alone in my, in my home, like two 30 on a Thursday, because I was just trying to get all of these movies in and was not really expecting, you know, I love talking heads. I like everybody else saw stop making sense in college. And like my head, you know, my mind was blown by it. And, but I wasn't expecting to be completely blown away by like a filmed version of a stage play. 
Mm-hmm. And I like, I think I teared up within five minutes. And, and and there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, I think I really underestimated like my relationship to David Byrne's voice. Um, and like he has a singular really voice unique, and I yeah. have been listening to it for so many years. And so he's suddenly there on stage and he's older than he was And the show, like definitely does have a lot of callbacks to stop making sense. And so I think I was like probably aware of like the passage of time and how like this particular instrument, that being his voice kind of marks the passage of time for me. Um, it is also a show about connection and community and moving outside of yourself. And, you know, it was conceived and performed before the pandemic, but watching it alone on your couch when you haven't like been outside in the world for six months certainly has like a resonant message. And then the way that it was filmed was like extraordinary and really captured. It didn't just capture the experience of being on the stage, but I think honestly, like added to the, like art, the artistic possibility of the production. And you got a sense of like this stage as a piece of art and you really got a sense of the choreography, which yeah. like, um, was it like, is extraordinary. The choreographer is, um, Andy B Parsons and the way that her, her choreography is filmed, you it's, um, you understand it. And I, that's really hard to do. I was thinking a lot about you, Juliet, and the Hamilton filmed version. And you're t- kind of talking about the difficulties in capturing you know, what is like a 3D dance experience yeah. in a 2D medium. Um, but they really figured this out. And I, like, I don't know, when was the last time you were like moved by the power of dance? I know when it was for me, it was uh, Beyonce's homecoming, but it's like pretty rare. Yeah. And for me, it was um, Oklahoma musical that was on the revival that was on Broadway like a year and a half ago or a year ago, whatever. There is like a, the, Oklahoma's second act has always opened with like a, a dance number and this was just like this one woman doing a modern dance and it was incredibly gripping and and really vivid and yeah when I it's hard to for me to feel really moved by dance regularly though I really enjoy dancing and watching dancing but I think you're right like when you identify like wow this is really powerful and and um imbued with so much meaning it's overwhelming yeah and it was just kind of like that like the dance itself which I think it's like is often a physical like in-person experience, but they managed to get it on a camera, like the, the art and the space and the music. And the, it was just, it was almost like being there. And I don't think it was like being there, but, um, I was just like, wow, art is amazing and powerful and I love it. Uh, so this documentary is available on HBO and I could not recommend it more. I want to watch it too. I, I'm going to, I actually have like no relationship to David Byrne whatsoever. Like I, I have not seen Stop Making Sense and only know like a few of his songs, but I think that like people who just like love music and like culture love David Byrne. So I should, I should get involved. And it's like, it is an ensemble piece. I mean, he's at the center of it and he's in the title, but he brings in like the way he brings in his band and the other people singing and performing. It's like, it's like a a troupe in like the Shakespearean sense. It's, I don't know. It's great. I love it. You, you mentioned before that your dad also loves this. So yes, I'm like did. really thrilled to be, um, <laughs> he said it was in great. concert with your dad, you know, that's a, it's a great club of two and I, <laughs> anyone else is welcome to join us. You're invited. I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. I'll report back. Um, my 
uh, music documentary of the week or music program of the week is the Black Pink documentary that was on Netflix. And obviously I know about Black Pink as a, someone who's on the internet and coworkers with Kate Hallowell of Tea Time. Um, I just like don't know a ton about K-pop, but I know what I've read on The Ringer and what we've covered and, you know, a, a, a bit beyond that. And so I was curious about Blackpink. I, I knew like nothing about them personally. And as mentioned several times on this podcast, nothing I love more than a pop music, hagiographic film um, of which this definitely was. And it was interesting watching it because I, I was just like, you know, part of K-pop it, and and a lot has been written all over about the kind of dark side of K-pop as well. But um, is that it's there's like a, there's like a a schooling to it. Like the women who are in, in the group went through this training academy from this company YG and their lives are really dictated by how like the, the program is run. And you start it's not that dissimilar in some ways from um soccer in other countries where like, you know, someone like Messi has been in like the junior club system since he's like 12 years old. Essentially, the difference I think with K-pop is that um, in a way that like similarly to like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears, they like owed a lot of money to their initial labels at first. These women like have debts that they have to repay or like would have debts that they'd have to repay if they like left the system or whatever. So there's a whole sort of like infrastructure around groups like Blackpink. Um, and it was just really interesting sort of learning about it in, in a way that is from the company itself. Like you don't, you don't learn a lot about um, YG or the, the sort of the deep background of these women, but from what's omitted in the documentary, I felt like I learned a lot from the questions that I had of just sort of like, you know, why aren't their families in this? Why isn't like, why don't you know more about like what their personal interests are? They're kind of like assigned personalities, but it just was interesting because I I felt like I brought like a lot of Western bias to watching this. And then as I thought about it more, I was like, this is just like very similar to how um, the Baxter Boys and NSYNC started and the ways that they were like cast as types instead of as individuals when they when they first began. And um, it was it was interesting. Also, like, you know, it was just like it was just th- interesting thinking about it in the context of like the Taylor Swift film, which she produced along with, you know, a production company and um the Ed Sheeran documentary of a few years ago. And I, I think just the way that like pop musical acts and the sort of like power players in pop music choose to portray themselves is just really fascinating to me. So I, I enjoyed it. I think it's targeted at people who love Blackpink already, but if you don't know anything about them, I think there's stuff, stuff to glean as well. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I love to know how a, a system works. Um, yeah. you know, I'd like, and I, I obviously also love people in a system and this is a podcast about celebrity for a reason, but I, th- I haven't seen it. I'll put it on my list because I, I think I like you, I have the knowledge of K-pop as in, it's just like a massive yeah. international, it's just mainstream. Like that is, that's yeah. what's popular. Um, and I, like, I know about it, but I don't totally know how it works. And I don't know. That's what. That's what we like. (laughs) The inner workings. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. 
Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reals always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus. View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, next TV show. What are you watching right now, Amanda? We got to talk about Borgen. Okay. You see see any Borgen? Yes. Did I did I not just like yell at you about Borgen yet? Um, um, you did a little. You didn't yell, but okay. you expressed some enthusiasm. Okay. I know. I know okay, that many of good. our colleagues are really into it as well. I haven't taken the plunge. Okay, I'm going to be honest. It's hard for me to really commit to a subtitled show. Okay, I understand that, but I believe in you, and also you spend a tremendous amount of time just scrolling streaming services and scrolling <laughs> YouTube and consuming just all sorts of stuff. So I think that this is like within your ability set. Um, I'm going to, if you don't know about Borgen, it is a Danish TV show that came out about a decade ago. And the, the short version, it is about, it is about the first female prime minister of Denmark. And it's about her struggles or, you know, her work life and also about her home life. And then it is also, there is another character who is, um, She's a, a journalist, like a TV journalist at TV One, which I think is Denmark's answer to the BBC. Um, and so, but it's a, you know, an empowered female journalist and an empowered female prime minister. And, and, and then their lives unfold. And it's just soapy enough to keep you interested. But there is also like plenty of stuff about the Danish political system, which is, uh, parliamentarian, I believe. Um, it, it's one of the European systems that always seems like really involved. And I just kind of nod my head at some point when they're like putting together the cabinet and the minister in this of this and the minister of that. But 
it it has similarities with West Wing in that it is a bit idealized. Um, I think it's just also really personally compelling the 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 work life, but the home life aspects of it are gripping. And like everyone who acts in it is fantastic. Um, it there were three seasons that were made. Oh, and it wow. used to be that you had to, they were, they've like, you could buy the DVDs, but you know, I'm not that old. So I found some less than legal ways to watch them many years ago, but now they're all available streaming on Netflix, which is just a huge technological breakthrough. Be grateful everyone that there's just so much stuff that you can watch all the time. It's really, sometimes I forget. It's amazing. We used I'm to, so I'm grateful. Just, so solar.eu or whatever the hell I was using on my computer. Anyway, um, but there are three seasons available and Netflix is making a fourth season, which is extremely oh, exciting. Oh, shit. That's great. Um, I also want to add that apparently you can watch it with dubbing. Yes, there is English I've heard dubbing. that. I would ask you not to. Um, I would ask you to commit. And also just, you know, when I started at my rewatch, it was auto set on English dubbing. And I was like very confused because that they were not speaking, you know, the Danish that I had come to understand. I don't, I don't know the Danish language. I just know that you say talk, which means thank you. And when there wasn't like talk every five minutes, I was very confused. Um, you watch with subtitles, watch with the original actors. I, I believe in everyone that you can do it. My, uh, my to-do list of foreign language shows are the hookup plan, which is a, French rom-com that I heard is good. And it's mm-hmm. like eight episodes and, and Borgen. So I'll try. I just have to really focus. It seems like a morning show for me when I'm really like dialed in at night. I'll be watching the right stuff when I will be less than dialed okay. in. Okay, great. <laughs> um, my uh, TV show that I'm currently catching up with is the boys on Amazon. Having really liked season one, I didn't feel emotionally prepared for season two because there's so much weird violence and just like weird shit in the boys. And Chris and Andy have covered it a lot on The Watch. So if you want really deep, um, no pun intended, um, the boys' coverage, I'd perhaps go there. But it's it's like dropping in on the boys is really funny for me because I don't really watch anything else like it. But I just like, I don't know. I like this show. Jack Quaid is kind of charming. Why would deep be a pun? Because Chase Crawford's character is named The Deep. Okay. Can you just tell me what the premise of the boys is? Because I've been inundated with the boys commercials and pre-rolls on other things that I'm watching on Amazon. And let me just, if anyone from Amazon is listening, let me just go ahead and tell you, I appreciate, well, I don't really appreciate your attempts at marketing because you guys have a lot of money already, but, um, I don't need to see some weird 30 second clip of like someone's like body sores talking like in a horror film before I'm watching like a documentary. I just don't. I think that's um Chase Crawford's character. He has gills on his body. Yeah, okay. And yeah. he's very he's I, very ashamed of them. It's I have right. to say, it's a well-written show. I understand why it's so popular. It's the kind of thing where you're just like it's it, in some ways and we've written a lot about it on the website. It's kind of the platonic ideal of superhero stuff at this day and age in the MCU phase 4 world. We are in phase 4, right? I, I've lost count. I don't know. It's, and it's like different phases for different people. (laughs) Here's the premise of the boys. Yeah. It's kind of like the inverse of X-Men. It's like, it's like if the mutants had taken over and it's about a company called Vought that has a group of superheroes that they like manage. And there's a, a group called the seven, which is like the seven biggest, most famous superheroes. 
and kind of like the dark side of how they control people's lives and also like all the nefarious stuff that superheroes do. And it turns out, you find out in season one, mild spoiler, that no one's born a superhero. They're like administered this drug that turns them into one. Um, and then subsequently your kids can be born that way. It's kind of like Scientology. Um, and <laughs> so, so it's about um, like a group of crusaders who are trying to bring down Vought and then their counterparts who are actually in it. And the superheroes are called Supes. And Jack Quaid is leading and Carl Urban are leading this group of crusaders who are like underground trying to bring down Vought and expose them for like the nefarious world controlling force that they are. It's incredibly violent. It's like definitely the most violent show that I routinely watch. I don't really like violence in my movies and TV shows, at least not like bloody violence, unless it's like a war movie or Inglorious Bastards. Um, and the writing is really good. The best thing about it is the writing. It's also so twisted. Like some of the ideas in the show are just like, how did you think of that? And a lot of the sexual stuff is like very twisted as well. I enjoy it though. What time of day do you watch The Boys? Um, I watched like two on the afternoon on Sunday. Okay. All right. I was just curious, you know, if Borgen the morning <laughs> show and, you know, whatever is an evening show. Um, yeah, I, thanks I, for asking. I'm glad that you enjoy it. I'm glad that you are communing with pop culture because it seems like a lot of people It's really do. popular. It's really popular. It is. Super, it is really popular. They play. It's based on books. So there's a built-in audience. I have to say, I think that like Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are better producers than they are anything else. They, they produce this show. I feel like mm -hmm. they've got good taste. I like, I mean, I like the stuff they make and are in, but I think the stuff where they're like EPing is like very good. Well, I think they've just clearly like they both have a built in audience, though, but they also just understand their yeah. audience like this, their, their yeah. taste is tapped into something that is like largely successful. The, um, the writing on the boys is very good. And Chris and Andy had the um, showrunner on last week. So check it out on the watch. OK. Last category. Other. Just something else. Can we can we name it like wild card? Wild card. Sure. sure I don't know. It seems fun. All right. Um, my wild card is an installment of something that we've talked about on the show before. So it is a recent Grub Street diet by the New Yorker writer, Jia Yang Fan. And if you are not familiar with, um, her writing, she recently wrote just an absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking, um, piece in the New Yorker about her mother and being a Chinese immigrant in the U.S. and her mother's um, health struggles and COVID-19 and kind of the feeling torn between cultures. And it's extraordinary. I believe she's adapting it to a book. I really recommend it, though it's it's not an easy read. It's really tough. Um, her Grub Street Diet is, is an easier read. She is certainly a personality and has like uh, just an extraordinary one-of-one -one relationship to food and just a, a great enthusiasm for it. And also just the, the, the way that she eats, which is primarily because she seems to be, um, she calls herself a night owl, mm. but I would say she's awake for most of the evening. And so oh, like dinner is dinner is breakfast. And then she's at home by herself cooking and writing and like filling the hours of 4am and things just get like very wacky at 4am in the best way. Um, I, it was just, it was really fun. It was like a, a, just a total 
encapsulation of a person. You felt like you like knew her. And then I also learned a lot about various restaurants in New York and different types of food. I just, it was a delight. Um, I feel like it's very rare to just kind of meet such like interact with unique people where you're like, there's no one else like this. There's no one else doing this right now. That's awesome. Yeah, that is nice. And it was great. Um, And I recommend her writing in general, but um, particularly her recent essay. So good stuff. I think in this moment, not only does like a sense of connection, like with David Birdfeld feel so poignant, but also having a window into someone else's life that's different than yours Mm -hmm. and their interests are different also feels really poignant because you're just like, you don't get to experience that that much. So that's like what great writing and culture can do. I have to say, I often, this is like not supposed to be a shameless plug, but I often feel this way listening to Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay, like the way that they talk about themselves and black culture and like their take on things that like I also know about, but like don't have the same connection to is, is like just like really gratifying and enriching. And it's really cool when you can, when you find that and, um, in a way that also like doesn't feel voyeuristic or like an act of appropriation, but really just appreciation. And it sounds like yeah, that it, sort of did this. It, it just, it feels like a privilege that yeah. you get to like spend time with someone, you know, who has such singular talent, but is also, as you said, um, really able to communicate like the accumulation of their experiences and their tastes and their talent. Um, and also like willing to share it. So I, I recommend it. Great stuff. Um, all right. I'm going to check it out. Mine is, uh, not as forward thinking, but (laughs) you know, it's also a a good segue into other stuff we want to discuss, which is I finally listened to Megan and Harry on TJ's therapy, the podcast they did with the teens about mental health. Did you listen to that? No, I only saw the kind of clickbaity, uh, aggregation quotes about how Megan was the most trolled person in 2019. She does share that. Yes. Um, yeah. It was pretty cool. I wouldn't say I like like them more or less as a result of it, but I'm finding that I have a really difficult time understanding who these people are based on the coverage of them from all sides, pro, con, English, American, international, whatever it is. It's really difficult to like understand who these people are. And so it it was just really cool hearing them speak. And even if and, and again, I don't mean this is a shameless plug for the work that we do, but even if you're delivering somewhat prepared remarks or fully prepared remarks on a podcast, I think when you're talking to teenagers and trying to connect with them on the topic of mental health on a podcast in your own home, there is like at least a sliver of authenticity that comes through. And so I just really enjoyed the window into like, Harry and Megan and and what they decided to share, what they felt was important, how they wanted to talk to teenagers and just sort of like what that was like. Also, it's only 30 minutes. Great stuff. And love it. <laughs> um, we should take a lesson from them. And it, it's really like nothing to do with like, if I like them more or less as a result or good idea or bad idea to do that pod, like, which we talk about a lot here. It just was very cool to have a primary source document. Essentially. I was just like, Thank you for this and not either anonymous reporting or like royal sensational reporting or even like People Magazine, you know, like I just was excited to hear them in their own voices, particularly talking to teens. I think that like as a I think for millennials in in general, I don't want to overgeneralize too much, but let me know if you agree. I feel like teens are really disarming to millennials, the sort of like suspend, like sort of like um, arrested development generation in many ways. And so 
to feel so far away from a 15 year old, but also being like, wait, I'm not 15 anymore. And also like kind of hearing them be part of podcasting space and, um, just being really bright and intelligent is, was like also very cool. It reminded me of many of the Parkland teens. So I just thought have, you know, been immensely mature and graceful in the face of awful adversity. And it was just cool. I recommend it. It was just like an interesting 30 minutes of hearing their voices. Yeah. I, on the, on the topic of hearing from teens, I constantly agree and I'm amazed and I can't figure out how much of it. It's just like, Oh wow, I'm old. I'm very old. And how much of it is, yeah. you know, a, a product of them being raised in a, in a different time and with different like education and media and understandings and different values. Um, I am continually amazed by it. I would like to tell a, a quick personal anecdote, which is Please um, do. A recent, recently uh, moved and we have, uh, you know, so we have new neighbors and there is a young neighbor who lives next door. Um, very sweet. All the kids are very sweet. And I, I was outside one day and, and I heard a voice and it was, um, one of the kids and she very politely is like, Amanda, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but I know that you're a journalist. And if you're ever doing anything about climate change and want it, and you need an expert to talk to you, I wanted you to know that you could speak to me. Because oh I'm God. really passionate. I'm really passionate about it. And I think there's like a lot more to do in terms of activism. And um, I want a school strike, but my parents won't let me, which is like very cute. And she's like clearly influenced by Greta Thunberg. But I was, I, you know, I, first of all, it was adorable, but I was pretty moved by it. Number one, by just like information and engagement, which I just, I think even if I, I mean, I hope I had some ideals at that age, but I don't really I think my ideals were probably like doing well in school. Um, and then was like so moved by the the confidence of, you know, I, I know this kid a little bit and we do live next door, but um, a young woman, especially just being like, I can speak on this and this is important to me. And so, you know, just let me know I'm available. I, it like, it gave me hope. Like the kids are going to be okay. So I, like, I agree with you. And I, I think to the Harry and Megan of it all, it's, to me, it's just another example of like, okay, this is what you want to do. Like, this is what you care about. And it's cool to actually see them doing it in like literal real ways, yeah. as opposed to issuing statements or, you know, all of the behind the scenes stuff, as you said. Um, also just shout out teens. Yeah. But the Harry and Megan, I was like tired of reading about them and like really grateful to hear from them. No, just yeah. because like they loom so large in my imagination, right? Like they're like, the celebrities that we talk about the most hands down and they're covered ad nauseum. And I was just sick of like other people's interpretations of what their various moves meant. And I also just find myself like really like sick of some of the very like hostile press, not just towards them, but like towards other celebrities as well. And I, so I was just like, I found it a relief, as I said, a primary source document. So for sure. And it's also, you know, even they seem to be like focusing on, kind of like the discourse online and, and online bullying and just kind of the way that social media invades all of our lives, which is just a hundred percent true. But you can talk about that in kind of like grand abstract statements that you, you can get anywhere, or you can talk with the people who are actually affected by it, which is, you know, teenagers. Yeah. And there's just like something about the showing, not telling that yeah, totally. resonates for me. Yeah. I agree. Totally agree. On the British note, Let's just do a quick check-in on Dominic West and Lily James. 
Um, Dominic West is in the news today, Tuesday, October 20th, because it's been announced that for seasons five and six of The Crown, he will be playing Prince Charles, the Duke, uh, Prince Charles, the Duke of Wales, Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales. Yeah. He's the Duke of some other things. He's got a lot of titles. Uh, unreal. Unreal timing. I, you have to, it's, it, it's hilarious to me. And I really commend Netflix for understanding the promotional waves and releasing Seriously. this. Cause that's like, that's pretty funny. It's one um, of the pieces that's been missing of, of like yeah. who will play print. I was, cause I was recently Googling it. Cause I was wondering how much longer we have with my dear Josh O'Connor. Um, no. And I just want to say, I don't like it. Way too conventionally handsome. I think, though, that based on everything that we talked about on last week's podcast and everything we know about Dominic West, he's going to bring like some necessary smarm and distrust yeah. to the role. Like we were talking about how adorable and lovable Josh O'Connor is. And but he's playing Prince Charles for empathy. And the show, at least in season three, I haven't seen season four yet. Don't spoil it, even though it's history. Um is definitely playing him for empathy and for just kind of the impossibility of the situation. And I think that's easier to do in the seventies and eighties. And once you get to the nineties and everything that happens between them, it's not his finest hour, if you will. And so Dominic West will bring, it'll be a bit easier to dislike him if he brings a little more of the affair to the, to the crown. That's true. That's true. I just, I don't know. Just wouldn't have been, it's like a great choice, but wouldn't have been my first choice. That's, that's all. Okay. Well, I just have to say it's tremendous marketing timing. I like, I don't know whether that'll mean anything for them in three Unreal. years, but right now it's amazing. It is also a little sad because the flip side of it is that Lily James is starring in the remake of Rebecca on Netflix. And it's, great I believe that's out. This great, friend, great book. book. Also, great Hitchcock movie. And I, I don't really, should you really be remaking a Hitchcock movie? Discussion for another day. But um, it's it's out this week and she understandably has canceled all her promotional appearances, which I, like I would too, you know, because like what else is going to happen? But I mean, it's a little, it's unfair that he like, he's getting another role and we're like, LOL, this is pretty funny. Um, yeah, when he is the person who is responsible and she doesn't get to take the victory lap for her show, even though, you know, she was not a member of the marriage in question. So it's here we are. I I know I, I will watch Rebecca. Uh, and I'm looking I, forward to it. Yeah, I, I enjoy the work of Lily James. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a re- it really is so unfair. I would venture to say. The luckiest figure in our society is like the handsome 50 year old man who's gotten handsome, more handsome with time. I just feel like that's the epitome of, of uh, a lack of justice in our world. Yeah. It's, it's one of many, but I agree with you. I it's You're right. It's not the epitome, it's unfair. but it is, it's just ridiculous. In the celebrity culture world, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very, uh, it's ridiculous. Poor Lily James. You're completely right. Let's all watch Rebecca and also hope that, Catherine Fitzgerald is holding up. Okay. Yes. All right. That's all we got. Amanda, should we start a Goodreads account? People comment that sometimes. Sure. I got to figure out how to use Goodreads, but yeah, let's do it. All right. We're going to look into that and we'll be back next week. Sounds great.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.